You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello, please let me see your ticket subs for the double-edged double bill. This week, Philip Seymour Hoffman plays Twister at the 25th hour. week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both want to pick them between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Thomas Mariani, and I would say I'm in the 62 percentile, at least. Uh, I am Adam Thomas, and I just sharted. The reference everyone would want you to make. <laughs> of <laughs> some more hopping stuff. <laughs> uh, but uh, so we are doing this week um, an episode about Philip Seymour Hoffman, who, if everything goes the, according to our usual plan, uh, we'll be releasing this the seventh anniversary of uh, that actor's death, which is still hard to believe for a lot of reasons. You know? Yeah, for sure, for sure. And the fact that it's already been seven years alone, I mean, fuck, that's insane. Yeah, I can still remember like hearing that happening and like with other celebrity deaths it's usually a thing of like oh that's a shame or like it's something i can comprehend though his was like one of the few it's kind of like the heath ledger thing where i was just like this isn't true right this is yeah like me thing too that happened yeah me too for sure i heard i went what no way like one of those other ones you're like oh fuck but this one I, yeah i didn't believe it at all uh in fact i i think my dad called me and told me uh, and my dad's you know for lack of a better word dumb um so i <laughs> i didn't believe him i thought he like you know he got it from some secondhand bullshit information but sure shit he's like it's all over the news i was like holy fuck yeah it, it was wild dude because you know as i'm sure uh you as well uh, I was a really big Philip Seymour Hoffman fan. Yeah, I, I was always a big fan. I would say ever since, weirdly, I guess we'll be talking about um, our one of our features today, the earlier one. Um, yeah. I, that was the first time I'd really seen him in anything, but I'd obviously become a fan of his, especially after watching, particularly when you get into like Paul Thomas Anderson's movies, because he's been in there oh, since sure. Heart 8, uh, which he has like a great scene-stealing moment. In Heart Eight, um, but uh, what what would you say was the when you really at least like glommed onto him as an actor? Uh, I think the first time I, I for me was also Twister. Like the first time I, I mean, I'd probably even seen him before that, but that was the first time I was like, "Who is this fucking weirdo?" But the first time I remember like really taking notice, probably honestly, is Brant in The Big Lebowski. Of course, yes, <laughs> he's so goddamn I'm funny. Like, this fucking weasel. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I think that's probably the first time I sat up and paid attention to him when he, whenever he came on screen after that. Just everything he did, he was good. Even if the movie wasn't good, he was good. Now that's that's the thing, yeah. In terms of like with our show, which if you don't know, this is your first episode. Every week, uh, Adam and I discuss a good and a bad feature that we pick at the end of the previous episode based on a relative sort of uh, perspective on that and with that it was really tough just because like most of the quote-unquote bad movies he did 
it was usually a case of like he wasn't as prominent as maybe a character. Like one I was circling around was like he was in the later Hunger Games movies from like Catching Fire through to the the other two. Um, and Catching Fire at least was the one that like oh I like this one. Maybe this series will keep going and be pretty good. And then the other two, the two Mockingjays were the last movies he did. To the point where I believe he didn't finish shooting Mockingjay Part 2. So there's a, some awkward kind of like trying to shoot around him. Like a bit where Woody Harrelson tells Jennifer Lawrence like, Hey, the, the his character wrote you a letter that's telling you everything he probably would have told you in the scene face to face. It's really weird. Yeah, I, I don't think I ever watched those two. I think I stopped with Catching Fire. I, I've been meaning to sort of watch them, but I just sort of got uh, Jennifer Lawrence out because she was in fucking everything for a minute. Mm-hmm. And plus also like, uh, you know, YA novels uh, it turned into books. I was sort of tired of the trend as well. But it is, I mean, don't get me wrong, they were huge movies, uh, so not a bad franchise to tie yourself to. It's just kind of a shame that those were his last movies. Yeah, though... At least to some degree, though, his legacy will at least be continuing, because I, I, like, nearly broke down when I found this out. The new Paul Thomas Anderson movie, which I knew was starring Bradley Cooper, apparently the main character is his son, Cooper. Oh. And I was, I was like, okay. really emotionally verklempt when I heard about that. Like, oh my god, that's beautiful. But even if that kid's a terrible actor, that's such a sweet sentiment for, like, Thomas Anderson to yeah. do that. Yeah, yeah, sort of pay his tribute to him in, his, in the really daring yet cool personal way but uh we're discussing two specific films from mr hoffman this evening uh because like i said we picked two movies at the end of our last episode uh i have the two bad picks and we ended up with twister as our bad pick and then our good pick was adam's pick which was 25th hour which both feature hoffman though in more supporting roles it's interesting we didn't pick one of the ones he was like a lead in particularly for the good pick because, don't get me wrong, I do think he was a good lead man, too, but I don't think there he was any better than when he was a main supporting role. He was an amazing supporting actor. That's true. He was always great in an ensemble, and it never felt like he was really taking yes. the spotlight from anybody, especially in these two movies. Though in Twister, I guess we can, as we begin to it, we can argue he steals the show many a time. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. So, so why don't we go ahead and start uh, getting into Let's get into Twister. There is a mystery. It terrifies most scientists. But for a new breed, the research is deadly. And the laboratory is nature itself. Joe! Bill! It's coming! Everybody underground now! Joe, come on! Get in the ground! Take cover right now! So, uh, Twister came out uh, May 10th, 1996, uh, directed by Hyun DeBont, uh, who we've talked about previously with The Haunting, which was his follow-up to this movie. Um, but this was a, a pretty big sort of, like, especially a special effects showcase at the time in 96. Um, and this was one I remember a lot from my childhood, because um, I think mainly because, honestly, this was the first big studio release that came out on DVD. I remember my dad vividly coming back home with, like, the snap case. Remember when DVDs had those yes. terrible, awful cases? The, <laughs> like, the cardboard? The cardboard the, ones? Oh, yeah. Cardboards with plastic uh, snap, dude. Yeah. Uh, for those of you who are too young, um, you're making us both feel old. 
if you don't know what this is, where um, basically in the initial point of DVD, they would have these cases that weren't even like the crappy plastic ones you usually get with DVDs, but like these cardboard cases that had a plastic snap that honestly easily damaged any DVD. <laughs> way, way oh, easily. Oh, constantly. Yeah, and it would always break. And then the little teeth that were inside that would actually hold the DVD always broke. Yes. So you literally just had a, a, a disc sliding around in like a rigid cardboard container constantly yeah they were terrible yes and this was back before we had digital copies kids back in our day this was the first major example so i remember watching this a lot because my dad like was a early adopter of dvd and definitely got that with the dvd player uh but also like twister just like it was on cable a lot as well and there was also twister ride it out which was the universal attraction where you would literally stand in an audience as the entire drive-in scene was recreated in front of you with like live special effects and, like, Bill Paxton and Helen Hunt were like, Hi, I'm Bill Paxton. Hi, I'm Helen Hunt. And we're here to tell you about I, Twister. They, they have the same voice. Exactly the same Your voice. It's true. Your impersonations are terrible. The, they're dead on because they sound exactly the same. <laughs> didn't you ever watch Mad About You and you're like, Oh, Bill Paxton on this show. I didn't realize. Oh, yeah, wait. No, it's Helen. Wow. Bill Paxton and Jack Nicholson are, they love each other. Helen Hunt is so great in Aliens, right? Yeah. She's, oh, man, phenomenal. <laughs> and by the way that was around from 1998 until 2015 at universal studios Jeez, like it was just a thing normally that would have been replaced by like 2002 and they just didn't give a shit about it. now to be fair it's replaced with jimmy fallon the ride so what there's a jimmy fallon it, it's really <laughs> the tonight show with jimmy fallon ride where like you're riding along with him in his fucking stupid car and you go into the moon it's dumb <laughs> I want my twister back. <laughs> God, is he just laughing the whole time? Just, oh, the guy's right. <laughs> Basically, it's taxi the ride. Pretty much, yeah. But you go to the moon in this Ugh. case, and there's no Queen Latifah to even cushion that blow. But we've gone far off Twister, um, which might be a controversial choice in terms of like Thomas. That's not a bad movie, and rewatching it's not necessarily a bad movie. But I think you can agree, Adam, even if it's a very watchable movie, it's a very dumb movie. <laughs> oh, it's it's so stupid. It, I mean, it's ridiculously stupid. But, yeah, it's still really fun and watchable, though. Mm-hmm. It, it's, you know, it's just, it reminds me, because I saw this at the show when it first came out, because it was like okay. the big fucking movie, man. Yes. And, I mean, I know people that still, like, this is their all-time favorite movie. Which is insane. You really need to see more stuff. But, you know, I get it at the same time, though, because it's super exciting. Um, the opening is like a horror film. Yes. The first five minutes of this movie is literally like a horrible horror film. It's kind of mentally scarring. I mean, the tornado's literally growling at them and shit. Like, it's, pre- it's pretty fucked up, man. But, yeah, it's stupid. It's totally stupid in all the right cheesy ways, though. You know fuck it you have to suspend disbelief for this movie because if you're looking at this like you know oh, i bet this is what storm chasers really do like no no nobody does this they, they don't play deep purple off tvs inside of their vans nope oh. they don't they all don't have some elderly woman's house they go to who cooks them all just like greasy but oddly delicious looking steak and eggs that's true it oh, looks, man, it looks so good. 
where it looks instead <laughs> of like actual steak and eggs, it looks like what you would see like in on an advertisement for steak and eggs. Yeah, it looks so good. Like I want I, every time I watch this movie, I'm like, oh man, I want to go hang out with that old lady. But uh, yeah, I, I still think it's a, it's a fun little cute movie. It's it's just a it's a you know it's a total disaster blockbuster movie. Yes, though it feels specifically very like '90s adjacent in terms of like right down from the soundtrack has Shania Twain, Soul Asylum, and Tori Amos. It's, <laughs> oh, God, I believe Lisa Loeb is also there because I could hear that "You Were an Invited" song like very prominently oh, during one scene. Yeah, yep. I'm sure there's some Loeb. It's not the '90s if you ain't got Loeb. That's that's true, and there's also just a lot of other stuff like one the special effects stuff, which this is also written by Michael Crichton. An executive produced by Steven Spielberg. So it's very clearly in the Jurassic Park mold. This feels very much like a specifically post-Jurassic Park blockbuster on every level. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no no question about it. Very much a Spielberg-produced movie in every way, too. Yeah. I mean, just with, like, the various different, like, special effects showcases of the actual twisters that are going on, and then even, like, the building, like, even the cast, like, this feels like a cast of a Spielberg movie, where, like, you go back and watch, and you're like, oh my god, so many people are in this. Like, it's not just Philip Seymour Hoffman, Bill Paxton, Helen Hunt, but, like, Alan Ruck from Ferris Bueller is in this, um, all, uh, Carrie Elwes is the villain, of course, Sean Whalen's one of the other guys, Storm Chasing. He actually plays a, yeah, he plays a normal person. <laughs> True. For, like once yeah um all the way even down to do you know who do you know who baby helen hunt is yeah dude it's alexa vega right from the spy kids movies which blew my mind what the fuck yeah me too <laughs> me totally me too when i when i was watching it today and i'm like who who is that and yeah sure shit alexa vega is young helen hunt that doesn't make any sense <laughs> it should yeah. have just been lily sovieski and been done with it but yeah, no, I mean, it's a huge, huge cast. Uh, Carrie Elwes' character is so fucking stupid. Like, he's not in it for the science, Adam. <laughs> yeah, he's in it for the money and the fame. What money and fame? It's so dumb. It's just totally stupid. And he's like an ultimate mustache twirling villain. Yes. Like he steals their science, and then he also like sees them stranded on the road and leaves them. Like it's just. This is preposterous. And you can tell his <laughs> his early example of like him not being able to quite do an American accent, in this case Southern specifically. I'll tell you what, though. His Southern accent in this is better than his accent in Saw, period. Oh, Jesus Christ. Saw. <laughs> what are you talking about? I'm Dr. Lawrence Gordon, Adam. <laughs> oh, it's so dumb. Yeah, I did it. He's dead. <laughs> like, oh, stop. But, uh... You know, but on you know, before we get to the man of the hour, I do want to say I do think that Bill Paxton and Helen Hunt do have some pretty decent chemistry and back and forth in this. Like you would get the idea that those two might be into each other. They're the perfect actors for this movie too. Where like they're yeah. not too big a stars to where they would like kind of like overseed the whole like special effects big showcase thing that this is like they know like okay the main star here is the giant tornado that's happening but we're still gonna have like our fun here and i think it really works it's weird where this is like bill paxton sort of at the prime level of his fame and then helen hunt right before she like wins an oscar for as good as it gets like the next year so they're both in very interesting sort of spots in their careers where one is at the high of their fame, but they're a supporting actor by trade. And the other one is kind of like, this is my first really big movie role before I become a massive star very briefly. Very, very briefly, too. 
Yes. Like, I don't. Is she even still do things? I don't even know. She was in some like home invasion movie that came out last year. I saw a trailer for. It. I'm like, oh, you. It's been a while. Oh boy. Oh boy. <laughs> Though I know, I think they're doing like a Mad About You reboot. So I guess she'll be doing that oh, with Paul Reiser. No. Oh no. Um. <laughs> oh God. But uh, <laughs> and also, uh, I, I God forgive. I can never remember her name. But you know the one who played Star in the last in the Lost Boys and everything is Bill uh, Paxson's like new fiance. Yeah, Jamie Gertz is her name. Jamie Gertz. She's really fun in this too because hey, she's adorable. She's always adorable. Yes. But and you feel so bad for her too. Like I just feel terrible for her. In this movie. Like she gets thrust in these horrible circumstances and then to find out the man that you know she's got to marry is like, I still love you, Joe. You got me. Like, oh, fuck. Even though she's very cool about it. Oh, she's super mad about it. Yeah. She's like, it's cool. I'm not even mad. I just got to go. You know, I kind of figured this was going to happen anyway, even though I accepted your proposal and we planned out a wedding and I'm sure it was going to be like a lovely time that I've dreamed of my whole life. But it's cool. I'm not going to be back at the hotel. Whatever. Bye. Peace out. Gotta go. <laughs> Enjoy your tornadoes. <laughs> she's she's talking about the Seven Eleven food. Oh, and she well, and she's also very much the uh, sort of linchpin for another very nineties thing of a lot of psychiatrist jokes. Oh, I know. Oh God, I know. And you're like, okay, I gotta go. We have cows. <laughs> All right. Well, but, that's uh, that's a pretty good transition point, at least for we haven't talked much about the actual special effects, which this was like the big thing this movie had. They do not. Um. I I think some of least, it does. Some of it does. True. I mean, I think I would say the stuff where it is just genuinely like the destruction that's going on, more specifically like farms and houses and stuff being destroyed. I think that works. Not so much when you have living things like cows going around. Right. Or exactly. even the, there's the bit where like Cariel was dies, where like his. Where uh, <laughs> <laughs> like the actual car going around the tornado, like oh that looks pretty good, and then his explosion is like a dot gif, like level yeah, explosion. <laughs> I can't, he didn't need to die. I mean, that was a little much, but yeah, anytime the tornado's shown at night, I know that sounds crazy, but anytime it's at night and you get flashes of it because of lightning or whatever, it looks legit. Like, particularly the drive-in sequence is, like, the best sequence for that. Yeah, it's terrifying. Yes. But then, like, I don't know. It, it's just, it, well, the whole thing's preposterous. You know? Well, here's the but, thing. I'll say that the special effects necessarily hold up, but the sound design holds up masterfully. Oh, it's amazing. Yes, like yeah, that was the most yeah. like Oscar worthy thing this had was just the the sound effect of like all the debris going around, all the chaos, and even like in terms of a special effects thing, I like there's a really great point where there's a marriage between like practical and CG with the bit where they're in the tornado during the climax and they have to go through the house that's fallen over. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty cool. And anytime like the lightning flashes, the sound it makes and stuff, it, it's yeah, the sound design in this is absolutely phenomenal. But um, you know, to sort of branch into our guy, the thing is. Philip Seymour Hoffman in these movies, like this movie, Boogie Nights and everything, he just looks sweaty and smelly all the time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but he plays it so phenomenally well. I mean, any scene he's in in this movie, you know, even up against all these other good character actors and all that, there's such a different level to him. It's that, like, sort of for his character, the, the just the pure excitement of it all. But also, you kind of get the idea that, like, maybe that's him on set as well. Like, he's just totally stoked to be doing this big, dumb disaster movie. Yeah. Um, 
it, it translates so well and he's so fun in it and just like is he stoned is he not is he just this like surfer dude who could never get in shape like what is he and he's he's just so good yes as dusty who's one of many examples of these storm chasers in the big group and i think it's the thing where like you look at the other people like alan ruck or some of the other uh sean whalen even they feel more like really thin archetypes you would see in a lot of these movies but hoffman despite playing obviously like he's the the big jovial dude. Basically, the, the role that Jack Black said this many times, when he was especially doing early stuff in the 90s before Tenacious D hit it off, he was very much getting the table scraps Hoffman refused. Like, this would be a Jack Black role. Yeah. Oh, a thousand percent. Even to, even today, if they were to redo this movie, it would be him. Yes. He adds more of, like, a believability than even a Jack Black would. Even though I'm a, I'm a Black fan, but he never really has as much of, like, the believability of, like, like Dusty, this character, feels like a real character I would have met at some point. Like, this dude who you yeah. would love being around this, like, force of personality. That's, like, he makes the fun infectious. Yeah, absolutely. And even the, the few scenes where he has to get sort of, where he's real and morose, like, when he tells him, you know, it's headed towards whatever county where the ant lives and everything, and he looks, he's kind of sad when he's listening to the speakers and everything. I don't think Jack Black could pull that off um, because the thing with Jack Black is you're always waiting for a bit. Um, Philip Seymour Hoffman, you're you're right. He's absolutely able to just sort of transcend that idea where, yeah, he's super fun and kinetic and goofy and crazy. But, I mean, just his chops alone, it never felt forced. It, It totally felt like this is just a normal dude who's just a little off. Yeah, even down to a line, once again, as stupid as, like, uh, you gotta taste your gravy, it's basically a food group. Like, that would be a line Jack Black would do, just be like, skidoosh, here's the gravy. Yep. As opposed to, Hoffman makes it a bit more believable. And yeah, I think my favorite bit of the whole movie that kind of sums up what I like about this very stupid movie is the bit at the drive-in where Philip Seymour Hoffman, like, starts announcing to everybody, like, everybody, it's coming for us! And then Bill Paxton's like, it's already here. I, know, like, I love it's it. So good. I love it. It's I so love fucking it. it's stupid. So <laughs> it's already here. You see, they're lying, honey. There was another Bill, an evil Bill, and I killed him. That's one of my favorite lines of the movie, too, because it's so dumb. But yeah, no, absolutely. And he's just so fun. You can't take your eyes off him anytime he's on screen. Like, even with the suck zone thing and all that. It's it's really, really a, a real fun, exciting, energetic performance. And this otherwise, I mean, it's an exciting movie and everything, but it's populated by people who are playing it dead-ass serious. Like, look how badass we are. Storm chasers, we're guards. <laughs> but he's, he's, he's at a whole other level than them, and it totally fits. 100%, yeah. He just he puts it all on the screen. Uh, but not in a way where it feels too over the top at the same time. He, he finds the right balance. Because even stuff like him being like super jovial, whatever, like you believe he's been a part of this group for so long. Stuff like, oh, uh, the extreme. Like only he like only he could make a line that sounds like a fucking marketing product. Oh, it's sounds. so dumb. <laughs> it's just like, do you spill up that the first E? Yeah, bro, I do. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, it's, it, it, it's X dash stream. But, um, yeah, he's super, super believable in this. You do get the idea, like you said, that he's been with these people forever, and they just kind of like, you know, maybe were annoyed with him at first, but now they just kind of like tolerate his goofiness. Like even this the, in the very beginning when they're all about to go after the first tornado, they're like, God, Dusty, hurry the hell up. You're always the last one. 
you know, that type of thing. You just get the idea that he's just this weird clown shoe of a character mixed in with the, all these straight-laced idiots. Like, at the ending, where they do the thing that always ended these movies, we're just like, oh, we had our fun, but let's just sit here for a while. Helicopter shot, credits start. Like, he's doing some stupid shit with, like, one of the other guys, just like, bro, I can't believe it, we survived! And it's just like, oh, that feels very genuine dusty. And, you know, it's also interesting, this is right before he blew up, too, because the next year is, like, Boogie Nights. And that starts, like, his career yeah. on a completely different path. Oh, yeah, would you, would you say Boogie Nights is the one? I, I think so. They at least the kicked it off, like, yeah, because, like, you know, especially I, a cast that phenomenal, he, like, really sticks out with uh, his character, which I just rewatched Boogie Nights earlier today, and fuck Such a good movie. Such a great movie, such and also he's, like, even still phenomenal, just like, I fucked uh, up, man, I, I'm a fucking idiot. <laughs> it's so yep. good. I agree. But uh, still, for Twister, he uh, still had some of that energy. You can you, that's that's the big thing. Like it doesn't feel like he's too distant. Like you can see really the evolution from Dusty to that character in Bookie Nights. Doesn't feel like too far of a drift. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. It's like Dusty got on antidepressants. You know what I mean? Where he's just sort of zoned out now. And realized uh, he was gay, and Mark Wahlberg wouldn't. Right. Well, there's that too. Yes. But we don't know what Dusty is. Don't kick shame Dusty. No, no. Um, you know, let let your uh, <laughs> suck zone fly. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, let your sucks on fly, man. <laughs> your sucks on flag. Let it fly. <laughs> um, but, you know, all in all, even, you know, Twister, I, I get why you picked it for the bad choice, because it is sort of a 90s sort of disaster piece and everything like that. But, I mean, this movie still has its legions of fans. It still is, I think, a pretty fun, exciting movie. Uh, populated by a pretty good cast. It's just, the, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman it stands out that much more in it. Like, there's no question, like, you know, watching this movie, even when I was younger, he was the, mo he was the most exciting person in the movie. And just the amount of talent that he even brings to this, and it's not hard to see why he would go on to become such a big star. Well, those sound like pretty good final thoughts, Adam. I, I guess that's what you were uh, kind of transitioning to. Um, Not on purpose, but welcome. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I would, I would largely agree. I think it's like I said earlier with the Philip Seymour Hoffman bad picks. It was really tough just because like the, the bad picks tend to be more movies that I knew he had like much smaller parts in. And this felt like the best zenith for like, okay, this is a dumb movie that in the spectrum of his entire career is on the lower level. But at the same time, it's a pretty fun echelon of that lower level where he's bringing a lot more to it like i would say in in the world where jack black started in this movie um it would probably be a lesser movie still a fun movie but probably a less slightly lesser and i think that's if anything why it's such a great choice to for the the bad pick is that it, it really manages to like show how much he can improve even in a smaller role a movie that would be a lot more forgettable without him in it um but still it's a pretty fun movie got a pretty good cast overall and special effects that mostly hold up better than not um but yeah it's fun and it's uh it's also written by michael Crichton. he got paid 2.5 million dollars to write the script with his wife jesus christ man that guy had yeah. a fucking banger of a 90s it's true yes before we get into our good pick here's a promo for an eso she can queue up right after ours 
We're the Con Guys, as in Comic-Con, and this is the Con Guys show coming at you straight from the heart of Hollywood, California, with the news, celebrity interviews, and fun-loving opinions to help fuel your passions. We are your ultimate insiders, filmmakers, writers, actors, costumers, gamers, panelists, but most of all, we are fans. And whether it's sci-fi, collectibles, comic books, gaming, animation, cosplay, or fan conventions, if you love it, we cover it. Your behind-the-scenes look at all things con. All right, now we're getting into our good pick, 25th Hour. Everything's gotten so strange, Bob. The only people I trust are you and guys I grew up with. What do we say to him? He's going to hell for seven years. What am I going to do, wish him luck? Champagne for my real friends and real pain for my sham friends. We haven't talked about this at all. You know, this is our last no, night. it's not our last night. My last night. Stay with me. No, I got to do one more little thing. Years from now... You gather your family together, you tell them how lucky they are to be there. This will be the best night of my life. Best night of my life. So, 25th Hour um, came out December 19th, 2002. Uh, directed by Spike Lee, which it's important to note, we have not covered a Spike Lee movie before. Oh, man. Yeah, that's crazy. You'd think we would have by now. Almost did, didn't we? Wasn't it like Do the Right Thing, an alternate choice or something like that? I think it's been like alternate choices and we've contemplated into a Spike Lee episode, but we'll, we'll probably do one in the near future. Though it's interesting we'd start off with this one because if I'm correct, I, did, I tried doing my research. I haven't seen every Spike Lee movie. We're looking at it. Sure, I sure. think this is the only one without a predominant role for a black actor. Uh, I believe that's true. Yes. Like, like the biggest one is Isaiah Whitlock Jr., which to be fair, for his two scenes, he steals them. He's so fucking great. <laughs> Yeah, he's really, really good. But, uh, Adam, this was your choice for the good pick. So why don't you go a bit into uh, why you feel this is a great example of uh, Hoffman. Again, it it sort of harkens back to what I said in the beginning. He is in midst of this really fucking phenomenal cast. And he doesn't necessarily stand out in it, but he's perfect in it with them. He is an excellent supporting character. Uh, I, I, I... you just you do get the idea that maybe these three guys that you know Ed Norton, Barry Pepper, and Philip Seymour Hoffman all grew up friends, but Philip Seymour Hoffman went in sort of a way different direction than they did, but he still fucked up just as fucked up as they are in a really disturbing way. I, I always forget it when I talk about my top films, but this is easily one of my top favorite movies of all time. Uh, this is a five out of five for me. This film. Um, so even just getting the chance to talk about it, period, uh, it was one of the main reasons why I threw it out there. But also, it is a really dark, disturbing, yet sympathetic performance from Philip Seymour Hoffman. And he's, in a weird way, the most likable out of the three of the three main friends. And yet he's really fucking gross. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, he's really kind of disgusting in it, too. And... Uh, but for him to play that sort of character and yet you still feel kind of bad for him, I think speaks volumes. No, I agree. I think that's the big strength of this movie in general. I would agree that I hadn't, I didn't see this until around college. I'd heard very good things about it. And then I, I just picked up the DVD. I think at like just a college community, like sort of sale thing. And I ended sure. up watching it and it was like, Oh my God, this is phenomenal. Um, I think it's because it's, it's interesting. I, I agree with you that I think, the, what you describe that Philip Seymour Hoffman's character really works for all three of those major characters. Because if you're maybe not familiar with this movie, um, basically it stars Edward Norton as 
this uh, character Montgomery, um, which I love that that's his fucking name. That's great. Uh, yeah, um, is this character who, um, as we find out in flashbacks and stuff, uh, got into drugs and drug dealing and ended up getting a sentence of seven years. And most of this movie, aside from the flashbacks, is the 24-hour period before he goes off to prison. And he's going to spend that night hanging out with his girlfriend, Rosario Dawson, who uh, plays Natural. Once again, great names in this movie. Phenomenal yeah, names really? characters. Um, who he might is a bit suspicious about, like, maybe she's the one that ended up turning me in and had the cops come in to the apartment. Um, but at the same time, he's also trying to um, reconcile with his two friends, who you mentioned. Philip Seymour Hoffman is one who plays a teacher um, who has some very uh, upsetting attractions to one of his students played by Anna Paquin who shows up during the events of the evening. Um, and then Barry Pepper who plays this asshole Wall Street dude who is just like so up his ass. But they all grew up together and they're all going to spend this one last evening together before Montgomery goes off to prison. And I think it's such a great example of especially like this was um, not originally conceived of as being a post 9-11 movie. It was in production before September 11th happened. And it's based off David Benioff's book, which, by the way, uh, David Benioff, one of the co-creators of Game of Thrones. Interesting fact. Yep. Yeah. And uh, his book doesn't really deal with 9-11, but while they were in pre-production, 9-11 happened. And Spike Lee consciously decided to make this a post-9-11 movie and make that really a part of the tapestry of it. And I think that's so key to this movie in terms of it's about a bunch of white people kind of reconciling, like, oh my God, how did we get to this point in our lives? How did this happen? And realizing maybe there's like a bigger context and that this shouldn't have been unfortunately as big a surprise as it was, which I think mirrors honestly the post 9-11 reaction. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and the thing is, this is one of the the sort of few post 9-11 movies that are that have something to do with 9-11 movies with 9-11. I'm sorry, as a whole that it feels real. It feels it doesn't feel forced or shoehorned. Like, it, it's definitely handled in a very, very careful yet strict way of telling it. And it, it works perfectly. It deals with sort of, like you said, you know, all these guys' little problems, but look what happened. And, you know, their problems are insignificant, really, compared to the overall, you know, tragedy that happened. But it also deals a lot with sort of racism that was happening mm-hmm. at the time. This real toxic sort of just fear of anybody, you know, different or who, especially people of, you know, Arabic and uh, Muslim culture. And it's just handled so, so well. But it never feels, like, mean-spiritedly told. Like, there, it's it's it feels very real as that this is how a lot of these people probably felt and thought. Like, Ed Norton's whole fucking, that five-minute whatever scene that he does in the mirror is one of the best scenes period in film i think it's so well done where he's going off about all these different races and you know fuck these people and fuck these people and blah 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 and then the end of it is no man fuck you you had it all and you fucked it up this is on you nothing else and it's so good and it's so well done and you know i uh, like i said i i think i rented this um, cause I was on a big Ed Norton kick for a while there cause of, you know, like fight club American history X and all that. So I watched this and I mean, I instantly was like, Oh, that's one of the best movies I've ever seen in my life. Well, I, I mean, I definitely agree, especially we, we need to talk a bit further about with the fuck you speech that happens, that monologue, it's one of the many great oh. monologues in the movie, but I, I agree. I think what works so well about it is it embodies, like I said, that kind of 
disillusion that people sort of had at that particular time of just like, oh my god, this horrible thing happened, and it feels so out of the blue to me from my specific perspective that I have to find an other to really, like, sort of pin it on. And he's pointing out, like, every single kind of other from different, like, you know, the Uptown Brothers and all these other, like, words I'm not gonna say. Some horrible things he says about particularly, like, the Pakistani immigrants and stuff like that. Um, or even down to admitting that the funniest one being the Bensonhurst Italians, which is, like, they're auditioning to be extras on The Sopranos. Bensonhurst. Bensonhurst. It's, it's not inaccurate. If you've ever been to that part of New York. Um, but at the same time, like, there's... That's what I like about that sort of big speech is that it's all about blaming somebody else for your own problems or your own inability to see the bigger picture. And ultimately comes down to, as you mentioned, the like, no, you fucked up. You completely screwed this up yourself. And I just... I, it's a movie that's really reconciling with the fact that, like, people don't blame themselves to any degree for their problems. And that's what gets us in situations like this. Right. Absolutely. And, and can we shine a little bit of a light on Brian Cox in this movie as well? I, I, I want to, but I especially when we get like to talking about the ending, which we should say. Oh, I, well, before we'll save, we get to. Okay. Yeah. But, oh my God, is he so fucking good in this movie too? Yes. Jesus Christ. This is, this is, this is what probably the role I like, I always knew he was good, but this is probably the role where I was like, oh no, he's one of the best. Right, because this, this is the same year as X2, which this movie has a few different X-Men people in it, uh, given the Anna Pack one as well. Um, but yeah, the, Brian Cox, who plays his dad, who I also like, that's the thing is, people might normally not assume like, oh, this is a Spike Lee movie. You can tell not because it has like any huge predominant black characters, but because it's such a New York movie. It's a wonderful oh, yeah. New York movie where it feels so much oh, like yeah. you're fully immersed in that entire like city and everything. And not in the like cheesy way of like it feels like a character in the film, but more of like these characters believably feel like they embody New York to some degree. Like even down to Brian Cox during that montage, which is like, oh, fuck my dad. He's just uh, giving drinks over to firefighters and just like, let's go Yankees. Feels perfect. Absolutely. Absolutely. But, you know, in order to get a little bit more on Philip Seymour Hoffman, and I believe his character name is Jacob. Yes. He's he's so out of place with these other two guys, like the, even the way he dresses mm-hmm. and looks and acts. But like I said in the beginning, you totally get that he's kind of like the tagalog friend now. Like he, they, he, they've always known him. Like they were probably the two popular guys and he was just their buddy. Yeah, their dorky nerd buddy, yeah. Yeah, their dorky nerd buddy who, again... Ugh, it's gross, you know, with his sort of situation with Anna Paquin. And ultimately, I mean, I'm glad it doesn't go further than what it did. It still went far enough. He's so good in it as this sort of tortured guy who just wants so desperately to fit in still with these other two. Like, even though he acts like he does, he wants to be like them. He wants to be, you know, cool and good looking and have money and power and have sort of, you know, the hot girlfriend and all that. He, he, desperately desperately wants it and the thing about it is it's such an amazing performance because he never says it it's just you get it the entire time like he desperately wishes he was like these guys i think that's part of the the sort of lusting after anna paquin deal it's like these guys would do it the lengths that you know people will go just for acceptance from other people is it's it's sad but at the same time it's disturbing too 
Right. I think it, it's that great mixture where, like, on paper, you tell somebody, like, this is his character. So it's like, oh, he sounds like a despicable, awful person. And he is for, like, the actual sort of, like, desires that he has. But at the same time, I think it's because Hoffman portrays him with such a vulnerability, which is something that, like, he really had as a performer. It's really that vulnerability that, like, it goes on to, like, any different number of characters that he played down to, like, you know, a few years after this, he's, like, in Mission Impossible 3, playing, like, one of the most, like, villainous of the villainous characters in those movies. Oh, he's so good, too. Right. He's but, so good in it. But you believe there's, like, some humanity still at the same time because of who Hoffman is. And even here, that's the case where, like, he plays this guy who's just like, oh, he's harmless, he's ineffectual or anything like that, but he has these desires that are unsavory and unsettling, especially given, like, his station. And it's like, he has this sort of ability to make you not necessarily totally empathize with this guy, but as much as, like, I can see this character existing in reality. And there might be some points where, like, you do kind of relate to some of his, like, sort of, like, awkwardness, and that makes the moments where he acts like a creep all the more unsettling, because you yes. have that kind of vulnerability toward him. And I think that's the thing, is, like, he doesn't, he has that way more than, like, Barry Pepper does, which we should talk about more. Like, Barry Pepper is, like, a guy we've, you know, talked about on the show, we talked about Battlefield Earth ages ago on the show, not necessarily our favorite actor. But this is, like, the movie I would show people where it's like, oh, that guy's not a good actor, no, he's not capable. No, here he is, being... A perfect scumbag. <laughs> He's a such a fucking scumbag in this movie, and I love the way his boss talks to him. You know, but even that though, it just goes to show that like these type of people, where his boss comes up to him, you know, you're not even shaving, you're not even wearing a clean suit, you come in here drinking your Red Bull shit, you know, blah blah blah. You're, you know, you just got your salary cap, you're doing all this shit, like you were fucking up. I will let you go. By the way, we still on for Saturday night. You know what I mean? And you're like. There's no punishment for these type of people. Right after that, he starts, like, totally trashing, like, a subordinate who's underneath him. So just, just like, oh, these are cycles of, like, this kind of verbal abuse that are going, because it's tolerated. And I'll tell you what, though. I do love that line. <laughs> Who told you to wear horizontal and vertical stripes? Yeah, I, I just thought it looked cool. Cool? You look like a fucking optical illusion. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's a really good line. That's the thing. It's like, I think Benioff has so many great like bits, because he also wrote the screenplay that was based on his own book. It has so many like great lines that really make you fully immersed, and like, oh, all these characters feel so believable. Which, weirdly, despite this being a New York movie, like you can see how that translates later to Game of Thrones, if you've seen it. Where even though it's like a big, fantastical world, there are plenty of other like great lines like that, that are just translated to Westeros as opposed to Upper East Side of New York or whatever. <laughs> right, with these sort of elite assholes. Right. Yeah, it's just, it's such a brilliantly written and executed film. I, it's hard to say if it's my favorite Spike Lee movie. I think it probably is. Like, no matter what Spike Lee will do in the future, he's made plenty of movies I don't like. But the fact that he made Do the Right Thing, Malcolm X, and this movie, these are like three, like, pretty much perfect movies to me so just like i'll watch anything that guy does because <laughs> those are just like three complete guarantors that like anyone would beg for one tenth of one of those in terms of quality in their career as a director he's done like three of them and i think that's the, that's the thing and they're all very different movies very extremely different movies but you see so much like his personality throughout all three of those even down to like so i love the use of like crane shots in this movie there's so many great mm -hmm. examples of, like, just crane... Like, especially there's one where, like, they're going into the club, which I found out was a crane shot with a steady cam guy inside of the crane. So there's literally a point where wow. a guy steps off the crane and follows them into the club, and it's, like, a huge one-shot. It's like, oh, my God, it's so seamless and fluid. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. And the score of this movie is really good, too. 
Yeah, from Terrence Blanchard, who did a bunch of his score. Like, mo- most of his movies are scored by this guy. He's, it's a phenomenal, it's this weird, interesting blend of, like, sort of, like, Irish taps that would be especially common at, like, police funerals, but also, like, oh. this, you know, the sort of Middle Eastern chanting that would be so much of a trope in post-9-11 movies. I think this is one of the few examples where it doesn't feel tired, <laughs> as opposed to how many other movies oh, that yeah. start with, like, that wailing, and then just like, oh, we're in a different place. <laughs> Right. Whoa. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. I think the score is handled expertly. And, and, you know, I'm glad you said it, but this movie looks so beautiful. It is shot so phenomenally well. And they a lot of the washouts they do with the sort of the color palette and the lighting, uh, it, it's just absolutely phenomenal. Lee was experimenting with that around this time because, like, a few years before, this is Bamboozled, which is mostly shot on, like, what looks like TV cam. And for the record, is like, one of the worst-looking movies I've ever seen. I think the movie has a lot of interesting ideas, but, like, it, the look alone is just like, ugh, this is so terrible-looking. But you can see how that evolved here. Or even when we get to, like, some of the fantasy sequences that happen and it's kind of washed out, it still looks gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And, Daw- you know, and we didn't bring her up, really. We mentioned her, but Rosario Dawson... I mean, she's so good at it. And, I mean, she just, you get it, too. You get why all these dudes would be into her. She's absolutely gorgeous in it. She's fun. She's spunky. But she's got so much, you know, depth to her character. She To me, she doesn't feel like just the hot girlfriend. Like, there's a lot going on with her, too. Yeah, it, it feels definitely like she's a character who has so much conflict about, like, this is basically the only adult relationship she's had based on where we see a flashback of... Montgomery hitting on her when she's like an 18 year old, but still in fucking high school. It's so creepy. It's so, yeah, she's like, in a, yeah, it's really gross. Yeah. in a Catholic it's school really girl gross. uniform and every, on a playground. Yeah. She's like, woof, dude, dude, <laughs> like, even if she's 18, that's really fucked up despite any, yeah. but, but yeah, the movie it's, also it's, like, it's, it's a great example where the movie doesn't excuse Monty or any of the other characters for those kind of vile actions. And even then you, you still sympathize with like, especially like, um, her or Anna Paquin also, in terms of, like, mm-hmm. you can see why they would have an attraction to some of these guys, especially because they're young and not as sure of themselves. And even how Montgomery is not absolved for doing this, but acknowledged at the end of, like, look, you should just get the fuck away from me. Like, even if I get out of prison, like, you need to stay away from me. Because I, I was never that good for you. He preyed on her. I mean, he, yes. he really did. It, it, he, it was just, it, it was a whole gross situation. And... and you know, then he gets involved with these Russian gangsters, which, by the way, the head Russian gangster is terrifying. But, yes. you know, he, play, he plays on her and, you know, gets her involved in this lifestyle that she becomes accustomed to. And then he's gone for seven years, you know, and, and it's like, yeah, you need to get the fuck away from this guy. And, on, you know, unfortunately, him going to prison is probably the only way that was actually going to happen. But good. The balance that especially those three main characters kind of have where, like, they don't feel like they're the most sympathetic people, but they feel like actual real people, down to the big sequence that happens in the middle of uh, um, Central Park, right, I believe is where that is, like, the big climactic yeah. sequence, um, which is um, such a great, like, really palpable, dirty, ugly scene of, like, him beating the shit out of Edward Norton just because, like, look, you gotta beat me up so I don't look pretty in prison. A lot of other movies kind of talk about, like, that prison rape thing in a way that feels like, oh, is this just homophobic? But this is, like, kind of addressing that in a way that's just, like, this is the length that these guys will go to to not feel like they can be emasculated. Where it's, like, they'll right. willingly let themselves get the shit beat out of them for that. And hard, too. Barry Pepper beats his fucking ass. Yes. Dude, I mean, oh, my God. It's such an intense scene. 
you know, close up on Barry Pepper crying, and then, then all the sound sort of goes out. And he's just hammering his face. You're like, the oh, one close up God. on his bloody fist. Oh, so phenomenal! Yeah. Oh, and then his breakdown after he does it. You're like, oh man, it's such and, and, and you know, an amazing performance from Barry Pepper as well. That's, that's the thing. I don't. I'd be hard pressed to pick a really weak link in this movie. Even them too, like we mentioned, like Isaiah Whitlock Jr. comes in for two scenes and steals them so perfectly in the flashbacks. They'll all the investigation thing like, hmm, must be the padding. That might be the problem with your catch. It's so good. <laughs> I love him. She. She, which he would later do on the wire, and apparently was based on his yeah. uncle who did that, which is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, that um, makes sense. Uh, and also his butt, like his other uh, cops, like the interrogation scene in particular, like their their back and forth is so good. Or even uh, another weird thing, I did not remember this at all, but uh, the the bouncer at the club is Patrice O'Neill. Like, whoa! <laughs> yeah, yeah. Holy shit! Been a yeah. while. <laughs> Um, and even he has like a, it's a pretty fun like back and forth he has with Edward Norton. I think that's the thing is like it, it, he casts it perfectly where he just feels so immersed in like this uh, these people's lives interacting with each other. Down to even like I think one of the best examples is how they interact at the club and how much of it is just like hey we're a bunch of privileged people in the VIP areas like we right. don't really associate with the commoners down there dancing to the DJ. We're up here. I think it's a great example. Even like this dude who's going to prison forever as a shitty drug dealer still has more advantages than like the average common person. And I love that whole arc too with Barry Pepper when he's talking to Philip Seymour Hoffman, you know, at his apartment. He's like, you know, fuck him. He sold drugs, you know, blah, blah, fuck him. And then they're at the club later and Barry Pepper's all drunk. He's like, well, you, you get out. I'll still be here and we'll open that bar together. Blah, blah, blah. You're like, dude, this is so phony. Like, this I mean, why, and, and he was criticizing Philip Seymour Hoffman earlier. It's like, don't you get it? It's over at tonight. Cut to four or five hours later. Just like, I love you, man. We're going to be friends forever. Where's our bracelet? <laughs> yeah, right. Basically. <laughs> but it's it's so real. Like, that's so realistic. You know, you two friends break off to talk shit about the other one. But then a couple hours later, I love you so much, man. It, it's just it makes it, it's absolutely a realistic sort of friendship and character dynamic that these three have with each other i've been in situations like this where it's like you're reunited oh, with a bunch do. of friends from college or like even farther distant just like oh yeah we're very very different people than the last time we met each other <laughs> and this is kind of awkward but we're still having some fun at the same time it's that great it embodies that perfectly sort of when you have that desire for like man can i go back to that specific time before Either something huge happened or really I was made aware of like my innocence being destroyed, basically. Down to, what well, we should get to it now, I guess, all of that perfectly summed up with the final like 10 minutes of this movie. Where he's being brought to prison by his father, That's Brian so Cox. Good. And Brian Cox delivers one of the best monologues ever in the movie. Yes, and it's, it's also one of the best sort of examples of almost like a fake-out ending. Yes. That, I, that I've probably ever seen it's so effective you know and a spoiler alert spoiler alert let's just say it now but the, you know if you haven't seen this movie it came out in 2002 so it's almost 20 years old calm down yeah what's the term don't fucking at me bro or whatever i don't know what you kids say but the thing is it's like which is not gonna happen I, nobody talks to me but anyways yeah it, it's just it's so good when i first saw it i was like really this is what they're gonna do huh and I was kind of on board for it, but I still like felt like, nah, this is kind of a cop out. Like he doesn't deserve this. And then when it ultimately shows, it was just a fantasy. Like what Brian Cox was telling him, like you know, we could do this. It's just, it's so good. It's just 
again, it's that perfect sort of everybody's got to pay their price eventually. Like your come up, it has to happen, and it, it's it's so good. Well, it's it's not just that, but it's also sort of it's that desperation when you're on your way to your ultimate fate. You have that bargaining thing, which is like maybe we can do something different. Maybe I can have this alternative thing where like I can have like a life that's not like my old one, but I can have like a life still. I can have like, you know, everything where like I can go off, I can have a job, I can have friends, I can go anywhere I go and have friends. I can, you know, get papers and escape being caught. And maybe even I can have my girlfriend back and we can have this lovely alternative thing where like we can like have kids and grandkids. We can all dress in white and we can all be perfect. We can go back to something innocent. That's why especially this feels so powerful as a post 9-11 movie. Because it feels like having that fantasy. Uh, we can go back to a time before all this happened. Before I found out awful things about, you know, like, either our government or the church or any other different things. That, like you, that really exploded out of especially like a post 9-11 world. And other movies kind of deal with it more of like, a, oh my god, isn't everything gritty and fucked up? It's like, no, that's not what's so interesting. It's about the idea of like, everything is so fucked up because we're kind of just being made aware of it. Like some, it's not so much like, oh my God, roaches suddenly infested my house. How'd this happen? It's just like, no, look under the rug. There was a lot of like food and bullshit underneath. Yeah. That really like, right, ha- exactly. led those roaches here. And I think it's such a beautiful way of summarizing all of that. Cause you feel, I agree. Like you feel that hope and you feel that like, oh, maybe this will all happen. And then that final shot of Edward Norton asleep in the car instantly tells you like, no, didn't happen. He's right. And it's, it's a perfect way to end the movie too. Yes, absolutely perfect way to end the movie. I, I would have wanted to end it any other way. Yeah, and just the way that it's also written with just some of the dialogue, like uh, Brian Cox being like, "Everyone should go to the desert once before they die. They need to go out there, and you can find peace. You can find solace. You can find God." Just like, oh god, this is such a great fucking. I know it's look. so good. <laughs> Maybe in a couple of years, after things have settled down, you send for natural. And you're like, oh. Well, well, even down to, like, he says, like, this could be dangerous, but you can send off for her. But even, like, right before that, when they, like, he says, I haven't had a drink in two years, but I'll have one more, one last whiskey with my boy. He's just like, oh, oh, my God, this poor fucking bartender. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you feel so and much. Then, yeah, basically, I'll have one more drink with you, and then I'm turning around, and I'm leaving your life forever. Like, you're like, oh, fucking hell. <laughs> and that's another, that's another phenomenal shot, like, when they walk out that bar in the fantasy, and uh, Brian Cox goes into the car and then turns around, and it's like a big crane shot of him leaving, and then it comes down, and Edward Norton's walking right down the road. Just another uh-huh. phenomenal shot. Like, there's, like, so many shots like that in this movie they are so good. <laughs> I know, dude. I love this movie so fucking much. But again, you know, and I feel like we, we sort of glossed over him a little bit. But, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman in this movie, that's another thing, too. I wouldn't want that character portrayed in any really different way. They don't make him outright gross and vicious. And they do they handle it in a way where you're like, like I said before, you kind of feel bad for the guy. But at the same time, they show you, oh, no, he's gross. Like, he is gross. But Mm -hmm. he's still a person. People, he's he's not a monster. He's still a person. Gross, Yes kind of perverted sure but he's still a dude which is like all this fucked up issues going on in his head and everything really exemplified by another one of my favorite shots where he does the spike lee shot which if you're not aware basically in any spike lee movie there will be a shot at some point where you're looking straight at a person's face as they're gliding toward you and everything uh-huh. in the background's going back when he ends up exiting the bathroom after like i said the scene where it goes too far but yeah 
you're right, where it's just like he kisses Anna Paquin and then leaves. He has that look on his face of at least regret and turmoil. Oh, yeah. What the fuck it's a total, did. what the fuck did I just do? And yes. I love the look on her face where she's like, what the fuck just happened? Right. Yeah, that's why I said, you know, it goes far, but I'm glad it didn't go any further than that. Like, I'm glad she right. didn't, like, kiss him back and was into it and everything. Because then it would have been just, like, gross. But, yes. like, you know, he kisses her and she's like, oh, what the fuck just happened? And I do really agree that shot of him sort of on the dolly, if you want to call it that, and moving forward while everything's happening behind him. And his just the look of utter sort of just self-defeat and self-disgust. It's done so well. It's really the only way you could have done a character like this, honestly. It almost weirdly feels like Lee kind of commenting on, speaking of another New York filmmaker, like a Woody Allen type character. If this was a Woody Allen movie, it'd be completely different. He would be the hero of the movie. He would be the hero of the movie. I mean, she's just so beautiful. Look at it. She's a beautiful, amazing woman. Like, oh, God, I fucking hate you, Woody Allen. (laughs) But But to steer us back, Adam... Go ahead and do your final thoughts on this movie, though. Um, I'm getting the sense you like it. Uh, like isn't an, isn't even an appropriate word. I absolutely um, love and adore this movie. It's one that I don't watch very often because it is a heavy-ass movie. But every time I see it, I'm just, like, floored by it, and by everything about it. Um, it's one of my favorite all-time movies. It's easily... Uh, well, not easily, but it's definitely probably my favorite Spike Lee movie. It's one of my favorite sort of ensemble pieces. Um, I, I just think it's, an, like I said, it's a 5 out of 5, 10 out of 10, 100 out of 100, whatever you want to call it. I think it's an absolutely perfect movie, and it, it's boistered by the some of the, if not the best work this group of actors have ever done. Uh, it's just, there's, I literally can't find a fault with this movie, uh, period. It's just, it's perfect. Yeah, um, I I very much agree with all that. I think it is a perfect movie. I think because it does so much to say that, like, these characters are all terrible, awful people, but they are people, but also not excusing their terribleness. It's such a, like, complex narrative that it really weaves together that's um, just, it bounces out so much, like, very gross underneath garbage that we kind of have as humans, but also displaying a lot of that humanity, which I think Lee has been so great at doing his whole career. It's just really like showing you like, look, here's this, you know, beautiful bit that like, we don't really see about, especially like New York or like the black experience in general. And then this case, it's just about more of this like perspective, like, well, here's the, the other side of that coin and how that coin can still have like a lot of beauty to it, but also a lot of grime and a lot of, especially like inability to really reconcile with your own, darkness i think it is such a phenomenal movie about that conceit about really looking yourself in the mirror and maybe doing a giant fuck you montage out of the heat of anger but then realizing at the end of it like no you you can't really be the guy to blame like everyone else for that because it's a still a beautiful world when you go out and meet those people like we didn't talk about this but the lead up to with brian cox's big monologue where he sees all the people from the fuck you montage like staring at him and smiling it's such a beautiful okay. lead into that. It's so I, I I choked up watching it this time. Just how much so it's, it's so beautiful. And I think that's the thing, is it's a it's a beautiful movie that displays a lot of that grime and darkness. So, like Adam said, it's very heavy. Deals with a lot of heavy subject matter. But if you can embrace that, you can see so much of like this this great mixture of griminess and beauty and see, you know, something that really exemplifies a lot about like this life a lot of people lead and how close uh, the good life is to just not happening 
that's the end of our discussion of our two movies for today. Thank you all for listening. Um, and we have some more uh, stuff to go into, including our picking for next week. Stay tuned for that. Before we do that, though, uh, we have some feedback because uh, every Monday at DEDB Pod on Twitter and Facebook, we ask you all about, like, hey, what are your favorite, least favorite movies related to whatever topic we're doing? Like Mr. Philip Seymour Hoffman's career. And we got some people chiming in, like James Rodriguez, friend of the show who says uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman was an exemplary talent, and we are poor without him lighting up the screen. Uh, he's shown, even in the smallest roles, such as his appearance at Heart 8, providing uh, able support in the Hunger Games sequels and being a goddamn menace in Mission Impossible 3. Uh, he was an exemplary performer in lead roles as well, such as in uh, Almost Wanted Man and Doubt, but his finest work has to be with Paul Thomas Anderson, being in Boogie Nights, Punch Truck Love, or my favorite movie of all time, Magnolia. The closest I've come to a bad movie with him is Red Dragon, and even that was more forgettable than that right bad, and PSH absolutely lit up the screen as Freddy Lowndes. But dum He will be missed. And then Matt Anderson at Matthew uh, 058-14152 on Twitter says, What an incredible performance he gave in Capote, and was easily the best nominee he was up against that year, despite having Keith Ledger and Walking Phoenix as well to compete with. And at Real Joel Copeling on Twitter, uh, that's Real R E E L, um, says uh, for his best, I'll highlight one of that doesn't get a lot of mention: uh, his challenging and tough work in John Patrick Shanley's Doubt. Um, as for his worst, he wasn't bad in it, but I'm not sure what he was doing in Patch Adams. Remember Patch Adams? <laughs> well, let's put it this way: I remember that being a movie. I don't remember him in it. No. Uh, that's one I could have done for a bad pick, Adam, but I didn't want to do that. <laughs> Oh, thank fucking God. Um, yeah, Doubt. Oh, God. What a great performance. It, it's it's pretty crazy that he's sort of the scene stealer against Meryl Streep. That's another movie where I would argue he's not the only scene stealer. It's such a great no, cast. And, like, especially like Viola Davis really has one scene in that movie and got an Oscar nomination deservedly because she's so fucking good in that movie when she's talking to Streep. And oh. even Amy Adams as well. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a movie. Uh, talk about another dark ass movie. Good God! But you know the whole scene where with Meryl Streep, you know, confronting him, getting to admit what he's done. It, it's it's harrowing, but it's so well acted. It's it's phenomenal. Um, another one too, like uh, before the devil knows you're dead. He's really good in that. Yes, that's a pretty good movie actually. And I fucking hate Ethan Hawke, but oh, he's yeah, that's a good movie. But uh. Yeah, no, they're, they're, like I said earlier, dude, there's not much. I, I can't really pick out a bad performance of his. Like, even, like, The Master is really good. He's so good at it, too. I rewatched that in preparation for the show, and I forgot. Like, I remember liking it in the theater, but being, I guess, a bit disappointed, but like, oh, this is going to be the Scientology movie, and it wasn't really that. And then actually going to it and looking at its own terms, is like, oh, this is a beautiful movie, basically, about two so people who, like, are missing pieces of an extremely upsetting puzzle. <laughs> We're just yeah. like, uh, hey, hey, I'm a former military vet, and I need somebody to, like, basically give me something to do, or else I'm going to go mad. And I am a cult leader who can only be happy when I'm telling people what to do based on my own stupid logic that I make up. It's a beautiful back and forth between those two. Oh, man, what a great movie. Yeah, I talk, yes. yeah, I talk about fucking great dynamic between two actors jesus like not to open up old wounds but what rewatching it made me hate joker more because walking phoenix is basically just doing a lesser version of his master performance in joker <laughs> looking back at this fucking movie <laughs> yeah pretty much yeah. I, I, that's accurate but yeah no any, anything he's done i mean i i absolutely 
loved him in. Like I remember there was talks of, you know, before Bane was introduced as the villain of the third Batman movie, like people were talking about Philip Seymour Hoffman potentially being Penguin. And I'm like, oh, that would be dope. True. You know, just because of him and like Mission Impossible 3, imagine him that, but as Penguin, I'd be like, oh, fuck yeah. But you no, know, I mean, I was always excited for anything he was in, and he was always at the top of, I don't know how many different fan casts for so many different roles. Like the thing is, you know, he was never an underappreciated actor. Like yeah. people always knew how good he was and how good he could be and how talented he was. Unfortunately, I think that's part of ultimately his downfall as well, along with, you know, who knows how many personal demons the guy had, but it's just, he was so good in everything he did. And, you know, I, I sort of agree with James, you know, it's, that's, it's a huge loss for modern cinema that we don't have Philip Seymour Hoffman around anymore. Yeah. Going back to like some of many of the stuff that he did, like we're watching some of those movies either for the first time. Like I hadn't seen Capote before this week, honestly, because I just that never like been. <laughs> the voice is a little hard to take at times. I mean, but the thing is like, look, you're playing Truman Capote. Like, it's not yeah. that accurate at all, Truman Capote. But what I like That's is the true. fact that it's so much about him kind of, like, embodying that character, but unlike a lot of other biopics, actually giving that larger-than-life figure humanity. Because it's literally, like, Truman Capote was this extremely wild character who was just, like, he had a fucking droopy dog voice, and he was just, like, piffy in real life. Like, this was a real person that existed. How can you make him, like, the silly kind of caricature seem human? And he did powerfully especially yeah. i didn't know that so many of the scenes would take place against clifton collins jr who i've said many times on the show very underrated mvp actor that i will oh, stand yeah. for on any occasion and like they work so beautifully off each other down to when he and the other guy are being led off to be executed and hoffman has that like breakdown just like i'm i did everything i could i'm so sorry like and he's still doing it in that capote voice but you're just like oh my god this pithy like dude who drinks martinis is still like so beautiful <laughs> i can't believe this is happening or even like it's like we mentioned he had like so many small turns like in uh, one that wasn't mentioned here that i love is almost famous yes yeah he's fantastic in that. as like the sort of uh the weird example where he's a mentor to Patrick Fugit, but ultimately you realize like, oh, you're not really a mentor to anybody. You're very sad in your own reality. <laughs> it's so okay. upsetting. Um, and one that doesn't get enough love, but I kind of get because it's sort of an impenetrable movie. Um, Synecdoche, New York, which yes. was Charlie Kaufman's directorial debut, which I get why, like, that's not a movie for everybody because it's very surreal and very depressing and very upsetting. And existentially, like, Philip, I love that Charlie Kaufman said, when I started writing this, it was like, I should write a horror movie. And his idea of a horror movie is a writer who keeps writing the same play and never finishes it. And also he grows old while doing it. And you see in detail how much, like, Philip Seymour Hoffman grows old and all of, like, the little insecurities. About, oh, my God. This, it's one of those movies where, like, I loved it so much, but I don't think I want to see it again, at least for a very long time. <laughs> yeah. I'd say that's very, very accurate. Yeah, and, and also just a shout out, I watched for the first time, um, I, I didn't even know he did this, uh, his only directorial effort, Jack Goes Boating, which is like a small, intimate, like, character movie where he plays, like, this limo driver guy who's socially awkward and his friend sets him up with Amy Ryan, which, if I had known years ago, like, oh, hey, there's a cute, like, sort of romantic dramedy with him and Amy Ryan, but like, so where, where can I see it now? Because <laughs> I love those two actors. And they work so wonderfully off each other. 
Um, and it's, it's, I would say it's not a great movie, but it's a fun one. And even like, I'll say Hoffman also did a great job of like lighting up even movies that I don't think are that memorable. Like Charlie Wilson's War is a great example where that's a very forgettable movie, despite how like massive the cast and it's directed by Mike Nichols and written by Aaron Sorkin. It's very forgettable, except you'll remember Hoffman the whole time. His weird character, like his introduction is him yelling at his boss and then throwing a wrench through his fucking window and then walking out and saying, how was I? To like one of the other employees and they're like, aces, dude. Perfect. Yeah, I agree with that. Absolutely. Uh, another one, too, that, you know, I, I don't know how I feel about it. I didn't think it was very good when I saw it, but I've seen it again. And it's okay, but he's really good in his uh, pirate radio. Well, I know, isn't that the, it's, it was called, like, The Boat That Rocked, like, either in here yeah, or Yeah, that's what it was originally. Yeah, in England, yeah, yeah. it's The Boat That Rocked. Here, it's pirate radio. Uh, he's really good in it. It's, it's kind of just a boring movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, another one, too, that he gives a really good performance, but it's just... <sighs> There's a lot of good performances in it, but the the subject matter of it is so problematic that it's hard to really celebrate as happiness. Yeah, I was going to say, I watched this for the first time very recently. It's a movie I'd heard about for, like, ages, and I was kind of, like, not willing to, like, give it the chance. I'm like, okay, it's Hoffman, I'll give the chance. He's so phenomenal in that movie, but yeah, um, it's an incredibly despicable, like, bunch of characters. Yeah, him and Dylan Baker are just so good in that movie. Yeah, and Dylan Baker especially is like, oh my god, you're so great in maybe the most awful character I've ever seen in a movie. Like, top yes. tier, worst people I've ever seen. Who's who's not, like, an outright, like, villain as treated Super in the movie. Right. Yeah, right, exactly. Right. No, he's awful. He's the monster despicable. of a man, yeah. Yes, but it, it's, like I said, I, I want to like it more than I do, uh, but it's just because of the subject matter. It's such yeah. a hard movie to sort of enjoy, because it's just gross. 100% agree. Or even, like, my alternative choice was Along King Polly, which, if you've never seen, is a very generic, stupid, like, rom-com movie. Yeah. But he's playing very much a Jack Black part, and he yes. excels at it. He does such a... Oh, he's, especially, he's hilarious in it. Like, his introduction is one of the best pratfalls I've seen in the movie. <laughs> he yeah, sells it so, so well. <laughs> it's so good. And he's just so gross in it. You know, like, squeezing the grease off Ben Stiller's pizza on his own. Like, it's so nasty. Or, or the sharded thing you mentioned at the top, the top of the show. Yeah. But he's so funny in it. Like, he's perfect in it. But yeah, it's definitely definitely a Long Came Polly, Heartbreak Kid, around the, that era of Ben Stiller. And you're like, okay, we get it. But don't you get him? He's tightly wound. Jennifer Aniston has a ferret. She's wild. Whoa! And she likes Indian food. Whoa! She's very manic pixie dream girl in that movie, very much the case. hundred oh, percent. That's the whole character. <laughs> yes, hundred percent that. Um, but yeah, thank you all for that feedback and giving us a chance to talk about Hoffman. And uh, we also want to thank some other people, like uh, Chris Oliver, who does the intro and outro music used in our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Emily Scarter for the art for our show. And thanks, of course, to our loyal Patreon supporters that's right patreon.com slash dedbpod where for just one dollar a month you all get to participate in uh listening to bonus podcasts we do like a tron legacy audio commentary that recently went up and adam and i had a lot of fun talking about that movie along and you can listen and watch along as we uh, talk about it and also you can vote in polls for like topics we do or even uh movies that we cover like adam we're going to be doing a walt disney animated features episode next month 
and uh, the patrons have a chance to vote for your two bad choices for that particular episode. Uh, this week it'll be going up that poll, and uh, what are those two bad choices they can choose between? Uh, the oft maligned, yet I believe underdeservedly maligned, but the Black Cauldron, and the oft forgotten, deservedly Brother Bear. Yes, two chapters Disney would like you to forget in their history, <laughs> for sure, yeah. but are available on Disney Plus right now, so we can definitely uh, watch those and talk about them. So either one of those two, um, it's up to you patrons to vote between the two Black of them. Cauldron. Black Cauldron, please. Black, Black Cauldron's the more interesting discussion, I would agree, than Brother yeah, Bear. Brother Bear, I don't want to watch. Yeah, Brother Bear, I'd just be like, oh man, Walking Phoenix is just doing a bad version of his Joker performance. <laughs> probably, probably, probably should. <laughs> now they're, they're going to vote for Brother Bear. The Black Cauldron has John Hurton and also a lot of gory, upsetting imagery for a Disney movie. Yeah, a lot of scurry shit. A lot of scurry shit, yes, yes. Uh, but for uh, some maybe not so scary shit, uh, you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at DEDBpod where uh, we put up those feelers and also just post real fun little things here and there. And also you can send us feedback, uh, doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com. And you know, if you uh, like our logo so much, uh, maybe uh, buy uh, some merchandise over at the ESOT Public Store, which there'll be a link for at the bottom here in the description. Um, you can buy a mug or a t-shirt or a mask. Be safe and wear a mask with our logo on it. And you can buy those over at the T Public Store for the ESO Network. And we get a bit of a kickback. We recently did get uh, our kickback for 2020 and we got some money it helps us it does it helps uh i don't want to say a lot but it helps so it helps get some cool swag yeah with our logo on it and just to show people like oh that i'm looking at your mask because i'm making sure you have your nose over it oh hey double edge double bill what's that and then you could be like i don't know it's not for you plebe (laughs) (laughs) stay six feet away from me plebe yeah fuck (laughs) off man if you could read this you're too close (laughs) <laughs> we should have done that. that that's a great mask idea. <laughs> if you're, like, you're too close to me. But for more of our individual antics, you can follow us on our own social medias. Like myself, I am on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd as at not the who's Tommy. I also do some writing at marianithomas.wordpress.com. That's my blog. Where stay tuned because I've got some virtual Sundance screeners I'm going to do over uh, this weekend. So I'll definitely be writing something. Yes. And speaking of writing, I also did a piece recently that was published at FilmCred which was, of course, uh, the site that friend of the show Sarah Sorrentino runs, where people uh, write articles and such. And I did one for Jim Henson, which um, I went up recently at its film-cred.com. I hope you all read that and also all the other great articles on that site. It's a wonderful article, Thomas, by the way. Oh, oh, thank you. Thank you yeah, Thomas. normally I wouldn't compliment you, but it's pretty good. Thank you. Really appreciate that. Well, where can people find you on the internet, Adam? I am on Twitter and Instagram at Atom or Adam, A-T-O-M underscore or underscore Adam. And, uh, you know, you'll find mostly pictures of paintings I've done, occasionally a meme, sometimes pictures of booze, you know, whatever. Just simple, simple, simple stuff. Nothing controversial, nothing crazy. But uh, if you want uh, a share or whatever, I'll always do that for you. Friends of the show, I will share your stuff. And uh, pretty soon... Pretty soon, I'm going to be opening an Etsy store. Oh, shit. Announcement. Exclusive. No one else has that. Exclusive. Exclusive. <laughs> I know it has. It's just me. But uh, I'll announce a little bit more details when I get them. But uh, I'll be sh- you know, selling paintings that I've done, painted pumpkins that I've done, you know, Christmas ornaments, whatever. And uh, 
I'll be selling them on there for a nominal fee. He does great work, folks. I have a little shop horrors pumpkin well, from a couple Halloweens ago that I really like. And at some point, I'll be getting a painting, I think. Yeah, eventually. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to the U.S. mail. <laughs> yeah, the track heat still says, in transit. So... <laughs> That was three weeks ago, or whatever, but yeah, cool. <laughs> yes, and uh, if you want more of our cool content, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms, and if you're listening on the ESO Network, why not listen to all the, all the other great shows on there, or dig even to, into our archives on our Podbean channel for just like the first 70 or so episodes we did before we joined ESO, and nothing else, if you can't buy some merch or become a patron for just a dollar a month, what would help us out completely free is just either rating reviewing and or sharing the show around to give more people visibility get them to notice us in the world it's all we want it's all we need we understand there's eight million podcasts out there if not more and more than half of them are talking about movies but we like to think we do something a little fun and a little different and we'd like to get people involved in our little edged lord family yes yes for sure and uh, adam before we head out it's time to do our picking for next week which you spoke of the edge lords uh-huh which is our nickname for all the patrons out there. They picked a topic for us because uh, next week we'll be releasing is Valentine's Day, uh, a topic, uh, you know, a week for all you lovers out there to stay inside. Yeah. Yes. Stay inside Um, and bone. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Um, And, uh, you know, they had to choose between two weird subgenres of uh, romance where it was between paranormal romance and the ultimate winner of bromance, though, for the record, another one of the very tight polls. That was tight yeah. with it all the way up to like less than 24 hours to vote. <laughs> I expected bromance to be a runaway. I really did. Yeah, but it ended up being that close. Uh, so, Adam, uh, I have the two good choices for bromance. So movies that have some kind of bro-y relationship that's positive. And uh, you have the same for your two bad choices. So uh, for my two good picks, I have a sign number between 1 and 10 for. Go ahead and pick a number between 1 and 10. Let's go lucky number 7. Okay, at number eight, I have uh, one I haven't seen in a while, and I can't wait to have the excuse to watch it now. Um, it is a, a, a bromance between two unlikely folks of Charles Grodin and Robert De Niro. It is Midnight Run. Holy hell, I haven't seen that in four fucking ever. Yeah. Nice. That'll be fun. That's a fun one to go back and revisit. Cool. I'm excited yeah. for that one. And what was your uh, alternate well, my alternate was, um, at number three, I had one where the, the bros are in the title. It's all what it says on the tin. It is the classic Butch Casting on the Sundance Kid. God, great movie, too. Yep, recently we watched that movie. Really it holds up very well. Oh, man, it's a phenomenal film. Oh, boy. Okay, well, uh, well for my bad, what you got there, Chief? Hmm, let's pick a number for a not-so-phenomenal choice. Um... I'm going to go with number four. All right. At number three, I have a movie that I think had potential to be something fun, but ultimately turned out to be just kind of a fart in the wind. Uh, The Jack Nicholson, Morgan Freeman, The Bucket List. Oh. (laughs) Yep. Yep, that's accurate. Okay. <laughs> uh, number nine, I had the one of the worst fucking movies I think I might have ever seen. Uh, Dude, where's my car? Oh. 
Yeah, my reaction to that, you can't see it visually. It's just like me throwing my hands up, just like, oh, okay. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I thought you were a little more excited about Dude, Where's My Car? I'm like, oh, um, I mean, that movie, to be fair, is at least a lot more, like, silly and goes to weirder places than The Bucket List, which is just like, hey, I'm old Jack Nicholson, I'm old Morgan Freeman, we're cranky and dying. Yep. Yep. <laughs> so I for next week. go to weirder places as well, because <laughs> why are we watching this? <laughs> That's true. It's a very good point. We'll be uh, having all that existential dread next time. But until then, Adam... You know, I gotta take you to prison, unfortunately. I gotta take you on that drive, but maybe I could go off on the off-ramp and maybe change your whole life forever. As long as there's a Sonic. So I can get some grub. You get, you were so close to this meal that almost didn't happen. And the diarrhea that followed. Oh, it would have been, it would have been a plethora. <laughs> on that lovely note, good night, everybody. Bye! has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.